from the National Project on Race and Capitalism. Welcome to Season 2 of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, histories and geographies, with your host, Michael Dawson. Ananya Roy is Professor of Urban Planning, Social Welfare, and Geography and Inaugural Director of the Institute of Inequality and Democracy at UCLA Luskin School of Public Policy, where she holds the Meyer and Renee Luskin Chair in Inequality and Democracy. Her scholarship has focused on urban transformation in the Global South, with particular attention to the making of world-class cities and the dispossessions and displacements that has wrought. She has convened various projects that seek to further imaginations and practices of social justice. She has received several teaching awards, including the Distinguished Teaching Award, the highest recognition bestowed by the University of California, Berkeley, on its faculty, the Distinguished Mentorship Award in recognition of advising of graduate students, and the Golden Apple Award, the only teaching award conferred by undergraduate students. She is also recipient of the California Professor of the Year Award of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching and the Council for Advancement and Support of Education in 2011. Anya received the Excellent Achievement Award of the Cal Alumni Association. So welcome. Good to be back at UCLA. And one of the reasons that we're here is for a conference on global aspects of race and capitalism that you spearheaded the effort. What are some of your goals and, your, and the people you work with goals at the, at the conference? Well, we're very excited about the conference, which happens tomorrow here at UCLA. And of course, the conference is inspired by the national endeavor that you and Megan are leading. And for us, that national endeavor was important not because the study of race and capitalism is new, No. (laughs) (laughs) But because perhaps this moment, both in academia and outside it, demands a new engagement with this topic and demands an engagement not just with the unfolding processes of white power and white supremacy and right-wing populism, but also with the very core of our discipline. So what has been on my mind anyway for the last couple of years is the whiteness of our disciplines and the ways in which we might take up very seriously the task of decolonizing the university and our disciplines. And what that means for me specifically often is thinking not just about global capitalism or neoliberalism, but thinking very specifically about racial capitalism and to do that across disciplines. So my hope for this conference, and I think we've begun to see a bit of this already take shape in the planning of it, is that the national project, I think, inspired us here at UCLA to come together in a way that we hadn't done before. Mm -hmm. I'm relatively new to UCLA. It's sort of been two years. But when we first started having the faculty meetings to discuss this conference, a large number of scholars from across departments and disciplines and centers showed up. And I think one of the things they said is that they hadn't all been in a room together. But for me, as a relative newcomer to UCLA, I see this university and I see the most extraordinary collection of scholars doing work in critical race studies and critical ethnic studies. And I feel that it is time to mobilize the collective energy 
of that body of scholarship, but also to think about how it transforms our disciplines, how it transforms the training of our graduate students, to model to graduate students that this work is not only possible, but is important and valued and recognized, but also to transform our pedagogies. One of the, I think, from the outside that uh, we know it's always more difficult from the inside than <laughs> from the outside. But one of the things that we found remarkable about the UCLA process is the wide range of disciplines that are involved. And obviously one of the disciplining mechanisms in the academy is to keep our, us in our silos. So I might be studying, even within my own discipline, studying race and capitalism from a standpoint of political theory, which I do, or from the, from the standpoint of empirical quantitative work, which I also do. Those communities don't talk to each other. Have there been synergies already from the sort of multidisciplinary network of the UCLA work? Well, I think that planning for this conference clearly sparked a multidisciplinary effort. Now, we'd been trying to do some of this work already, and the institute mm -hmm. I direct from the very beginning saw itself as a multidisciplinary space where faculty from different disciplines could find a home for their research and their engagement with pressing public issues. And I think that other programs on campus, like the Crit Critical Race Studies program in the law school, have been doing this for a very long time. But I also think that there's been a wonderful coincidence of leadership across various centers. So aside from bringing the departments together, I think for this conference, what we have is the bringing together of different research centers. So the Bunch Center for African-American Studies, the American Indian Studies Center, the overall uh, scaffolding of the Institute of American Cultures, the Institute of Inequality and Democracy, the critical race studies folks at the law school. And I think that really thinking about these centers not as each pursuing a separate agenda, mm -hmm. but as thoroughly networked is absolutely crucial. And I see this conference as a catalyst for that kind of collaboration. One of the central themes in your own work has been the, the relationship between gender and inequality, gender and poverty. How has that folded into the work and the discussion so far? That's a great question. And it's a question that I struggle with at the moment. And I say this because in my early scholarship, particularly my first book, the question of gendered poverty was front and center. Mm -hmm. But that has not necessarily been the case with more recent scholarship of mine. And yet, when I was teaching this morning, so I'm teaching the histories and theories of urban planning to all of the first-year master students. So it's about 80 graduate students who are all having an existential crisis as they discover the history of the discipline <laughs> that they have signed up for. And this week was on colonialism and particularly on coloniality. And, and sort of the prospect of what Mignolo calls epistemic disobedience. But one of the things I mentioned as we talked about the work of Gayatri Spivak is that for me, post-colonial feminism has been in many ways absolutely central intellectually and methodologically. That if I were to talk about the debt that I owe critical theory, it would be primarily to post-colonial feminism. And I use the qualifier post-colonial precisely, say, because of the debate that you've had with Nancy Fraser, mm -hmm. that she's been a towering figure, clearly, in terms of influences on my work. And yet I'm very clear about the limits of feminism when it, when it comes to thinking about capitalism or politics or human freedom. So post-colonial feminism has been quite important for me. So whether or not I'm explicitly taking on gendered inequality, I, I hope 
I think and act like a post-colonial feminist. More recently, though, as I study processes of evictions and racial banishment and urban displacement in the United States, I've had to return to this question of the specificity of gendered disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And that's something we can talk about later. So for me, gender remains an important analytical category, but even more importantly, I think certain strands of feminist thought anchor my work. One of the ways that feminist perspective entered my work was through the scholarship of black feminists at the University of Michigan when I was an assistant professor. And coming out of a black radical tradition that was at least partially patriarchal in theory and thoroughly patriarchal (laughs) in practice, the the question of gender was always subsumed to the questions of race and class. And the trying to figure out how different systems of domination, I think, whether it's Nancy Fraser, whether it's me, whether it's you, I think we've all, it's a hard question. And part of it, I think, one of the lessons I'm learning from colleagues in the natural and local projects is by being very specific and very empirical in our work, we can better understand how the, on the ground the, the lived experiences of people. And then we can hopefully, that will help our theorizing to some degree, but certainly should help our politics even more. Absolutely, and I think that that empirical piece is so important. So I think of myself as an ethnographer. And I think really tracing the lived experience of inequality and how inequality is produced and persists requires us to think about gender not, as you pointed out, as a category that is subordinate to or second to race and class, but in fact as integral in their making. That's absolutely right. And, you know, I think that that shows up in many different ways in the processes we study. But it also shows up, as you noted, in the ways in which work that perhaps makes gender central is often devalued and continued to push to the margins, that that is not seen as the important kind of political economy work that we might do. In the same way that the analytics of race is often pushed to the margins in in urban studies, which is my discipline. And part of it, of course, this comes out of the, the tradition that you've already mentioned, but what counts as knowledge? I mean, certainly feminist theory and, and post-colonial feminist theory, black feminist theory, has told, told us that what we count as knowledge is not just patriarchal and the product of a system of domination, but also severely limits our political visions. That's right. So this has been my ongoing battle in urban studies. I would like to say that I put it to rest and we've all put it to rest. But it's quite actually extraordinary for me that every year at the conferences, one has to show up and I see this almost as feminist labor. One has to show up and make the same damn arguments again about what is knowledge, what is universal knowledge, what is authoritative knowledge. So not only is knowledge produced in the context of the global south persistently marginalized, right? The knowledge produced here is universal, theory with a capital T, knowledge produced there, scientific, knowledge produced there is cute and exotic and anecdotal and ethnographic and not generalizable. But I think also repeatedly, the use of feminist theory or the use of postcolonial theory is seen as only explaining the other. But my interest in these theoretical frameworks and my interest in categories such as gender is not because they tell us something about quote-unquote the other. It's because they tell us something about the seemingly centered sovereign subject mm-hmm. of the universal history of capital. Right. 
One of the other central themes in your work, and it flows out of some of your lived experience, we both lived in Oakland in the 1980s. <laughs> and I, I've been told I wouldn't recognize Oakland anymore, unfortunately, is that you're very much interested in space as both an analytical category and a site for research. And, I, and you've done work throughout the world, um, the global north and the global south, uh, examining and trying to, to figure out how we understand and fight various forms of inequality and, po- and poverty, particularly in urban regions. One of the points you just made is that we take knowledge from the global north, particularly the U.S., in our case, the Anglo-American North Atlantic, as the universal seat of scientific wisdom. I'm having a hard time saying that with a straight face. Uh, Maybe I'm not (laughs) succeeding. (laughs) But we don't take seriously knowledge produce others. And one of the questions I had before we started talking was to what degree and what lessons can we learn? I know one of the one of the areas that your work has been, for example, on Asian urban development. What can we learn from what people have done elsewhere in terms of fighting inequality? So the question of the global south is is really an important one. So I often approach it in the following way, that the south is not just in the southern hemisphere, mm-hmm. sort of everywhere, right? It's a particular relationship, a socio-spatial relationship of uh, subordination. But given that... There is also, I think, the very real and pressing question of what is happening in countries that are not a part of the North Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So I'm very interested in what the Komarovs call Southern theory and and the ways in which they think about the Global South as a distinctive vantage point for viewing the present historical conjuncture. I find that very, very useful. But also that in thinking from other parts of the world, and we have done this deliberately and strategically at the Institute, where we've thought very much about our location in global Los Angeles, but we're also trying to think from India, Brazil, and South Africa, there are two pieces to that. One, to me, is thinking about not just knowledge, but epistemologies that are alive and thriving in other parts of the world, but which we have ignored in our Eurocentrism. So that's key. And I think that those forms of knowledge and that those epistemologies often contain very important insights for conceptual frameworks. So not that we can simply go in and appropriate them, but that we should humbly learn from them. And the second is that I think that what is happening in many parts of the world, particularly in the large prosperous economies and democracies of the global south, is in fact a quite different political economy of accumulation and distribution than the one we're seeing in the North Atlantic. So my crudest version of this is that in the North Atlantic, we are at a moment of severe austerity politics, right? We cannot imagine the remaking of the welfare state, not even for white people. That is not the case in the global south. Interesting. So even though we have very high levels of inequality, and we have a similar question, how liberal democracies reproduce inequality, right? what we also have afoot is a quite different politics of distribution. And Jim Ferguson writes about this very beautifully in his somewhat recent book, Give a Man a Fish, where he talks about the valorization of this new politics of distribution, not because governments in the global south are somehow benevolent and have decided that they are going to help the poor, but because majorities in those countries 
democratic majorities have pushed for these programs. So we are able in those contexts to think about a basic minimum income. We're able to think about universal health care. We're able to think about the right to housing constitution in in the constitution and institutionalized in different city statutes. Now I don't want to overly romanticize the these achievements but they are a quite different way of thinking about the relationship between inequality and democracy than what we have in the North Atlantic. I have speculated in my work but I wanted to the degree to which if we think about elections in Austria, we think about Brexit, we think about the 2016 presidential elections in the United States, uh, the recent parliamentary election, elections in Germany, and the centrality of either race and or my immigration, questions of immigration. Um, in the United States, of course, we have both of those yoked together quite strongly in the person of Donald Trump, but the, the politics go way back. The degree to which the fact we can't form these majorities for a welfare state is before a successful campaign to link austerity to a certain form of white supremacy that crosses class lines. If we are to think about social democracy, and it's actually rather short history, (laughs) (laughs) Um, it has always been a thoroughly racialized project. And what we have now is a new articulation of that. I think across Western Europe and and North America. But I would say that also in parts of the global south and the country where I grew up, India is a good example of this. We have a particular yoking of economic liberalization, if not austerity, economic liberalization and right-wing politics and right-wing populism. Yeah. And so I would add to that mix Islamophobia, to the mm-hmm. race immigration mix, which I think has been a very powerful binding force, if you will. And in all of these cases, what we have then is an argument about how certain state forms and certain state programs and policies have granted entitlements to those who need not even be recognized as human, let alone as citizens. I think that's exactly right. Moving in a slightly different direction, in addition to the massive work that you and your colleagues have done to pull off tomorrow, you, of course, direct the the institute. What are some of the programs that that the institute's involved in these days? So the institute is quite new. We formally started our work last year. The institute comes out of a mandate of the Luskin School of Public Affairs to have a research institute focused on social justice, which is unusual. Yes. Um, And we also have these key words that we inherited, these grand words, inequality and democracy. But I think what we decided early on and what has become even more urgent after the election of Mr. 45 is the ways in which questions of inequality, while they have been prominent in the headlines in the United States, they become a sort of common sense. So much of that has focused on socioeconomic disadvantage, on wealth and income inequality, and almost as if this is something new, as if it's a surprise, as if it comes out of the Great Recession and the subprime crisis. But what we wanted to do with the Institute was to focus on racial inequality and struggles for racial justice, precisely to point out long-standing, persistent structures of inequality that cannot always be reduced to economic disadvantage. And so the themes that we're working on at the moment are one around 
sort of urban displacement and evictions or what in my work I've been calling racial banishment. A second is to think about mass incarceration and, and, and more broadly processes of criminalization. And the third is around debt, predatory financialization, debt peonage. But with each of these, what we've also tried to do is to think about how our research is shaped by and is in partnership with social justice movements, whether it be those here in Los Angeles or it be those in India, Brazil, and South Africa. And we wanted to do that because that collaboration between activism and and powerful research universities is a difficult one. But for us, it was absolutely crucial because we felt that there were frameworks of epistemic disobedience, to use that phrase from Mineola again, that had been crafted by these movements that were well ahead of what we were doing in, in say, even the circles of critical theory. So with each of these research themes, say with the, with the theme on debt, we've been thinking about how we can support the work of groups that are building debtors' unions and thinking about debt as a new horizon for collective action. Or with evictions, we've been thinking a lot about urban social movements, their relationship to black liberation movements, and how these movements, aside from putting people back in homes and so forth, and occupying homes, are crafting new meanings of property and personhood. Or how the mass incarceration work is also fundamentally about decarceration mm -hmm. and new meanings of citizenship and and sort of... Each of those, I think, therefore, each research theme has not so much, it's not so much about a to-do agenda, this is the application of research. It is precisely to say that what we see to be our conceptual frameworks, our critical theory guides, come to us not just from those based in academia, but come to us also from those fighting on the front lines. These three themes are themes that we've, run into a lot, well, in my own work, but also in some of the podcasts. And one of the debates that has been sort of stretched out over a number of podcasts is how to think historically about the economic regime we're under now and how that relates illogically and historically. For, I mean, I think people, whether it's Piketty on one hand or Nathan Connolly very, very smartly on another, can very much say what you just said, that the period of social democracy was very short <laughs> and that the 20th, at least part of the 20th century was not just short, but as a number of scholars and others have pointed out, very much confined to a certain part of a privileged, racialized, gendered working class as well. But the debate is about whether what we're seeing today in terms of m massive levels of inequality in the U.S. and elsewhere type of debt peonages or uh, gilded age and trampling on institutions of democracy for economic and other interests. Is this a reconfiguration and, a, and there's more continuities with the past, with the late 19th, early 20th century on one hand? Or do phenomena, as I tend to argue, such as the financialization of everyday life, mean that we're in a period of high inequality once again. That might be the norm and not the exception, but there's something fundamentally different, whether we call it neoliberalism or something else. I think that, first of all, we have to think about continuity. My, my students in urban planning are always surprised that in the first week, 
I have them read at least a chapter or two from Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, because strangely, that book doesn't get read in urban planning. Hmm. (laughs) Yes, I know. I know. Right. But but there is, of course, tremendous value and elegance to that argument, which we now, of course, take for granted. So I think the remaking of the racial caste system through particular technologies, and I, as an urban planner, am very keenly aware of how many of those technologies are those of urban planning, mm-hmm. is absolutely crucial for us to think about. And, and we can add to that technologies of uh, debt peonage and other things, The second piece of this is, of course, to think about how what starting in the 1970s, sort of after the civil rights movement, what we begin to see, and this is very apparent in in the forms that subprime lending takes, is what one of my colleagues in urban studies, Elvin Wiley, has described as inclusionary segmentation, right? So there we know the, the sort of forms of exclusion. We know the redlining, we know the racially restrictive covenants, but once racial ethnic minorities or women were included, they were included in highly differentiated, segmented ways on subprime terms. So that too is a continuity, but it is a recalibration of these systems, right? And the third piece of this, I think, speaks to the note on which you ended your question, which is how do we make sense of um, current forms of financialization, of global capitalism, of the deregulation of markets. Now, we can call that neoliberalism, and I have often called it neoliberalism, but recently I've been a little worried about the use of that term in my discipline because it almost stands in as an explanation for everything. Yeah. And, 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 and the problem with that, what it often does, is that it obscures the fact, as Connolly points out in his work, that for large swaths uh, of this country, there was no inclusion, segmented or otherwise, in what came before. So I like to think about a changing system of racial liberalism. I'm very interested in what liberalism means, say, for urban planning. And what racial liberalism, particularly in a post-racial colorblind age with hyper-financialization, does or does not do to bodies and communities? That makes a, a lot of sense. And one of the, I think, key aspects politically was certainly in the U.S. And we can talk about it to the degree it happened elsewhere. I think you can see it certainly in South Africa. It's the creation of a political buffer class as well that was able, so it wasn't always fully included regardless if you, whether you have an ANC president or African-descended African president in the United States. It's still a segment of inclusion to the political regime, but one that creates a buffer class that does a lot of the work of, of, and the tech, and in, 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 does the work of installing the technologies that you were describing. Well, that was what the, that was the brilliance of British colonialism in India, right? <laughs> yes. That's why I'm here at this table speaking English and not speaking Bengali. I mean, you know, just precisely. Lord knows what I should be speaking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really know no other language than English. I mean, but precisely, right? We 
that in fact systems of dominance operate, I mean, I'm, I'm still in some ways a Gramscian, operate very much through hegemony. Mm-hmm. And that hegemony is a crucial part of these systems of gendered and racialized capitalism. One of the, to be a bit snarky, one of the themes I think that Alfredo and I have had listening to various guests on the podcast is when people are talking about their disciplines, we realize how far behind political science is, and we're getting a little tired of that. (laughs) But one of the things, one of the reasons to talk about that is to talk about disciplines which are actually sort of, at least and some members of it are trying to reshape them. You keep, you know, you talk about having to show up at the meetings for the urban policy. You talk about the pedagogy of, you know, graduate students of what they need to, what they don't know coming into programs and what they need to know. How has that process played out over the past several years in, in, the, in your discipline? Well, so, you know, I think of my discipline as urban studies writ large. So it's urban planning, it's geography, it's to some extent sociology, sometimes it's anthropology. And it, this discipline has a tradition of being radical. There are journals of radical geography. I am editor of one of the flagship journals of the field founded by radical sociologists. And (laughs) with all due respect to all that radicalness, as many scholars have pointed out, including recently, we remain very white, not only in terms of the bodies that inhabit the discipline, but also in the types of knowledge that is produced. And that, in many ways, for several of us, has been a matter of concern. But it also then is an important pedagogical challenge in terms of how we teach the canon, but also disrupt the canon. And for me, that's that's meant a few things. It's meant demonstrating how a different theoretical project is possible, be it through post-colonial theory, be it through critical race studies. But it's also meant thinking about the institution that is the global university and what sorts of knowledge are valued or not. It's sort of the institution building work. This is why tomorrow's conference matters. It's why the institute matters. And thinking about the ways in which we might be able to build spaces both within and across disciplines, that do that work of transformation. One of the, my close colleague and friend, Kathy Cohen, and I gave uh, dual lectures last week at the University of Michigan, which is one of the central departments in in, in political science. And we both were trained in the, you you know, different between the bodies and what type of knowledge we produce. We were both trained to produce standard political science. But what we, pro- what we produced and what we lectured on was anything but. <laughs> and what really struck me, and I've commented to a few friends and colleagues about that experience, was the degree to which the graduate students, and there were many from multiple disciplines in the audience, were looking for something different. And I think that's one of the few hopeful signs I've seen, is that people don't want to just reproduce the same type of knowledge. They not only want to ask different questions, they want to be able to go about it in ways that are get outside the confines that that they've lived with. So I think this is the task of research universities, particularly of public universities, if we think about, you know, what our mission is and who are the students who actually are in our classrooms. And this is why I love teaching the histories and theories of urban planning class, because it goes to the core of the canon. So two things that have been on my mind this quarter. So one of them is how we might make visible to them 
different narratives and genres of scholarship, including those that are not often taken seriously as scholarship, and how we might therefore work towards the task of producing those subaltern histories. So, for example, in class, I've been having them listen to some hip hop. When we talked about mass incarceration, we spent a bit of time with J. Cole, right? <laughs> um, and and that was really crucial. And we spent a bit of time with the song Neighbors in particular, which was a wonderful way of thinking about the lie of integration in the United States. Not only because, well, it's fun to listen to J. Cole, he's a brilliant artist, but because I wanted them to think about particular forms of expression that are not seen often to be forms of scholarship or theorization, and that must be, Mm -hmm. right? But the second piece of this for me has been to, I think, quite dramatically contest what is produced as history and whose history. So today, you know, as we were talking about colonialism, the standard history of the late 19th, early 20th century, of the of the emergence of modern cities as Ausman in Paris, Robert Moses in New York, the Paris Commune of 1871, all of that good stuff, La Corbusier, and we did it. And then I wanted to completely disrupt it by saying, it's not that this stuff is wrong, it's thoroughly incomplete. So we focused on French colonialism in North Africa, we did Paul Gilroy, we did Edward Said, and in particular, we thought about the interactions in the colonies that give us, I think, and Fernand, that give us the most sophisticated ethics of human freedom than thinking about the Paris Commune, but also recognizing that many of the practices of urban planning, like zoning and building codes and historic preservation, were not forged in Paris or New York or London. They were forged in French Algeria or British India. So that the West was not the scene of the modern, Mm-hmm. Right. It was, in fact, its encounters or its violent encounters with the so-called rest. But that sort of disruption remains unusual. The standard histories are taught as the standard histories. And as Gilroy would say, they're taught as as sort of expressions of what he calls innocent modernity purged of people without history. Right. What he calls a bourgeois humanism. I think it's really important for us to intervene in that decisively, repeatedly, but it's also important then to think about these other genres of theorization. I think one thing that has opened, maybe, I'm not sure about this, has maybe opened the eyes of some urbanists in the Midwest is the realization that how are you going to talk about contemporary urban studies without thinking about China, for example? Most, you know, a new city is being born every yeah, yeah, something's close to it. There's more, there's more urban residents in China than there probably are in Europe and North America combined, and they're having to think through infrastructure and systems in ways that far exceed. I know that what, what goes on in the U.S., where we're very far behind what's going on in most places of the world. So the Chinese case is important. I mean, one one of the books that I did. On this topic was with Iwa Ong, who's an anthropologist based at UC Berkeley. It was called a book called Worlding Cities, Asian Experiments and the Art of Being Global. It came out of a social science research inter-Asians collaborative project. And our interest in that was precisely to call into question that the heart of urban development and tran- urban transformation lies in the West. It doesn't. Yeah. Right? It lies not only in places like China and India, but what... Brazil. 
Brazil. And for us, what mattered, and we focused primarily on this territory imagined as Asia. But what was really striking was the ways in which city makers, whether they're developers, elected officials, urban planners, the ways in which they imagined the future of cities was not in relation to cities in the North Atlantic. Right? They saw those cities as being done and over with. They imagined the future of cities as Asian. So urban planners in India very conveniently think about Singapore, Shanghai, and Dubai as their models. And they, of course, lament that uh, democracy gets in the way in India and they can't do what they need to do. But the other part of it is that thinking about a place like China, I think forces us to reconfigure our notions of the role of the state, what the meaning of land is, how we think about infrastructure. So David Harvey has this very famous essay, Neoliberalism with Chinese Characteristics. And I think he gets it wrong. This is not about neoliberalism with Chinese characteristics. We have a completely different pathway of urban transformation there and of urbanization that at first glance looks similar. Oh, well, there's urban redevelopment and there's downtown stuff and, and it looks like gentrification. But those are not the processes at work. Yeah, and both it would, the capital and the state are very, very different. That's right. And it would behoove us to understand these different formations of state power mm-hmm. more carefully. So what's next, given the being in an urban university in the age of 45? Well, you know, since the election of Mr. 45, I think at the Institute, we decided that we had to continue the work we were doing along the research themes that we mentioned, but we also had to more explicitly create an agenda, a public programming and public scholarship that would call out and challenge white supremacy and white power. And we did that from the very start. We, you know, we'd started with the theme of urban color lines And we said, well, we've now got to think about the front lines. Mm -hmm. And we also quite explicitly said that the role of the public university was to convene forms of public scholarship that can build the resistance. So during the week of the presidential inauguration, we issued a national call to universities and high schools and asked educators to teach, organize, and resist. And that took place on January 18th, and there were like 120 actions around the country, which we then put together in in a beautiful volume that is online. And we're going to continue doing that work throughout the year and coming years, because I think it's quite important for us to demonstrate the power of research and knowledge in building a different future here in the United States. But I think it's also important for us to resist what I see as right-wing attacks on universities using the ploy of free speech, and therefore also labeling those of us who are critical of the Trump administration to be anti-American or to be engaged in partisan politics. I think we've got to demonstrate the power of our research and knowledge, and we've got to do that without fear. Tenured faculty, I think, are the most protected bodies and livelihoods in the country at the moment. And we've got to be able to use that privilege, I think, not only to call out the specific character that is Trump, but to call out the making of this particular regime and its effects. 
and connected to a regime of systemic inequality across multiple domains. Yes. That needs systemically to be dismantled. That's right. That's right. And so one of the things that we have been trying to do is to work at multiple scales, right? To think about what is happening in Los Angeles, but also then to think about the ways in which issues are being framed on the national scale in relation to this regime. And I'm so very proud of one particular project because it was led by students. So the students last year in urban planning, the master's students, were of course shell-shocked and heartbroken by the outcome of the election. But they decided that what this meant is that the curriculum could not continue as, as is. And they came together and formed a class I served as the faculty sponsor for it, which they termed abolitionist planning. And they conceptualized a beautiful and important class, and out of it came a resource guide that they produced, which has circulated widely across the nation on abolitionist planning. And I'm so very proud of them for that work, because it was an opportunity not only to examine the unfolding policy agendas of the Trump administration, and to deploy their role as analysts, but really to think seriously about the long tradition of abolitionism and in this country. It's very, very rich legacies, particularly its legacies that allow us to think in new ways about reconstruction and, and to think about what that means for them as professional urban planners. So that, for me, is an example of the sorts of things that we can and must do at this moment. On that note, I want to thank you very much. This has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks for tuning in. Please find us on RacingCapitalism.com. That is RacingCapitalism.com to access the show notes describing this and all the other episodes and stay up to date on the Racing Capitalism Project.